0: Well, you've caught us in the middle of a uh, series that we are doing this summer um, that was sort of originated by a question that was asked to, by, to me by the search committee. Les, what kind of church do you want to go to? And I couldn't help but answer out of my own experience that um, uh, I, I thought off the top of my head, well, I, I think we ought to be a place of the book. We talked about that the last week, about how everything that we do in a Christian church ought to be built upon the foundation of that living document. Well, I want to feel today with the second answer to that question that came from me, which is that we want to be a place of grace. I think this is really important, so much so that we're going to do another one next week. So this is part one of uh, this discussion that we're going to be talking about as we dive into this. And to introduce this, I want to tell you about an article that I came across uh, a number of weeks ago when I was preparing this uh, by a guy who was writing a book. um, And the title of the book was called, I'm Okay, You're Not. And the subtitle was, The Message That We're Sending to Nonbelievers, and Why We Should Stop. Now, like, I have no idea whether that's a good book a bad book. I don't even know the content of the book. But I do know that when the guy was doing the research for the book, he apparently did a- a- an online survey asking for people who see themselves outside of the Christian faith to write in responses to the question, what do you wish you could say to somebody who is a Christian? especially when they're trying to evangelize you. Realize what I'm, does that make sense? So he asked non-Christians who make no claim to Christianity what they wish they could say to Christians if they had the opportunity. Well, one of these responses kind of caught my eye from KC from Fresno, whoever that is. hope you're not here. <clears throat> they say this, Whenever I am approached by an evangelist, by a Christian missionary... I know that I'm up against someone so obsessed and narrowly focused that it will do me absolutely no good to try to explain or share my own value system. I never want to be rude to them, of course, but never have any idea how to respond to their attempts to convert me. In short order, I inevitably find myself simply feeling embarrassed, first for them and then for us both, and I'm always grateful when such encounters conclude. Some harsh words. But you know, for the sake of a thought experiment this morning, indulge me with changing the word evangelist with the word with the phrase I'm old Miss fan, and read it again. Whenever I'm approached by an old Miss fan, by a land shark fanatic, I know that I'm up against someone so obsessed and narrowly focused that it will do me absolutely no good to try to explain or share with them my love for my own team. I never want to be rude to them, of course, but I never have any idea how to respond to their attempts to give me tickets to this weekend's game. In short order, I inevitably find myself simply feeling embarrassed, first for them and then for us both, and I'm always grateful when such encounters conclude. Now why is that funny? It's funny simply because we rarely realize that when we're trying to compel someone uh, with our favorite college football team, we're kind of evangelizing. And as it turns out, any sort of real joy, any, any sort of delight that we found in life, ends up being almost um, invariably infectious. I, I would even go so far as to say that any joy in life, anything that you find uh, to be fun or enjoyable, is really not that much fun until you can share it. I mean, did you see that television show last night? You've got to watch it. Oh my goodness, you've got to go eat at this brand new restaurant, we say to people. What are we doing? You're evangelizing people. Now, why am I starting this way? Well, because today, we've sort of come to a passage that I think essentially describes what is the most basic foundation for Christian joy. In other words, if you want to kind of plow through what the whole story is about in its most simple form, you've come on the right day. Because Romans chapter 3 is just this. The whole book of Romans is really nothing more than Paul's explanation about the good news. That's what it means to evangelize someone. It means to tell them the good news. So what I want to suggest to you this morning is, we find out what the good news is and we find out what drives it in our passage. In other words, we got two points this morning. One, what it is that Christians might get excited about. And number two, what's the foundation for that excitement? Okay? So just two points. And we're going to introduce two big vocabulary words that you'll be able to drop at dinner parties and sound smart. <laughs> Which is why we went through it anyway, right? So number one, the reason for our excitement. Verses 23 through 25 that Ward just read of chapter 3 introduce us to the word justification. This is the first one. Justification. We are justified by His grace as a gift, Paul says. He's already started this entire passage with this, but now, in verse 21. And what he's talking about is, is the way in which mankind can get on God's good side. That's the best way I know how to describe what the righteousness of God is about. He's simply saying, how can a human being know that he is on the same page in good stance with the Lord of the universe. Well, then he he goes through and he reiterates this argument. He talks in verse 23 about the problem of human sin. But then in verse 24 is where he gets to the magic word and are justified by his grace. What Paul means by that word is so huge that the great Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, It's the second time we've quoted Martin Luther. Luther's getting all kinds of press. He says, this is the doctrine, the pillar upon which the church stands or falls. In other words, if you mess up justification, you might as well not have a church at all. Bold words. Let's see if he's right. I'm going to give you three thoughts on this first point to try to unpack for you what we mean by justification. And the first one is this. Justification is simply the soul's desire To feel like you're at home in the world. To be justified. Think about this. What did you do this week uh, to justify your existence? (laughs) You went to work. My daddy used to say that. Son, what are you doing to justify your existence today? Maybe you went to work. Maybe you took care of your home. Maybe you took a trip. But why did you do those things? We did those things because we're trying, as we sometimes say, to make something of ourselves. We're trying as best as we can to be justified, to know that my life matters, to have some sense that the things that I'm doing are in alignment, as it were, with the reality around me, that I found a place in this world. Careers, spouses, jobs, children, home life, raises, every, all of these things come to us as ways to feel justified. You know, small little commercial here at the bottom. This is unrelated to the discussion. But, you know, for for, for high schoolers and college students in the room, this I actually think is a little bit of what drives falling in love and the desire to have a boyfriend or girlfriend. I think a lot of what drives a desire to sort of have somebody that you're dating is that desire to feel like, you know, I finally have a place in the world. It drives it. Maybe that's a little bit of what we call love. Again, it has nothing to do with the sermon this morning, but I thought I'd throw that out there for you. That's free for the young people. But the Bible says that there's a problem. Because when we go to those particular things, we weren't built to be justified by them. Those things can't in and of themselves create for us what only God can give us. Only God can pronounce us as right or grant us his righteousness. Does that make sense? But there's a problem with that. If God's the only one that can pronounce it, Paul says, we have a problem because, to say it briefly, he's offended. We know this. God is actually offended at our desire to seek justification in other realms. And maybe not consciously, but subconsciously, there's a powerful sense in the heart of every human being, whether you find yourself religious or not, of something chasing you, of something being wrong. This week I came across an article by someone who was talking about what he, <laughs> what he believed was a universal sensation of leaving a basement Think about that. Some of you may have a basement. If you've ever been to a basement, you can follow this illustration. But I resonated with this. Have you ever been coming up out of a basement, and you get to the first couple steps, and you, and you feel like you kind of need to walk a little bit faster as you're going up? It always feels like there's somebody behind you, doesn't it? <laughs> Worse, if you have a light that's at the bottom of the stairs and not the top of the stairs, which is an act of human cruelty. <laughs> it's dark down there, and so you just kind of, your heart races a little bit. Well, Paul is basically saying, everyone has that. There is this powerful sense that's sort of gnawing that something's chasing me. I'm not right. I'm out of alignment. Something's wrong. Hey, by the way, religious people, you can do the exact same thing. Don't think you're off the hook just because you came to church this morning. Because the verse that we we read during our uh, sort of call to confession said that even the righteous who trust in their righteous deeds aren't going to walk away righteous. In other words, it means that oftentimes we look at our justification as being the religious things that we do. Well, you know, I read my Bible, faith, every morning, less I, I come to church. Of course I know what it means to be justified. But the Bible says if you're leaning on those things to be justified, they'll actually do just the opposite of what you wanted them to do. So justification is not some sort of distant idea. No, I think it's quite close to all of us. Secondly, Luther worked very hard to explain a very key component about justification, and that is simply this. Justification is not something that is done inside of you, but rather it's something that's done about you. Now, what in the world do I mean by that? This is a big deal, so hang on with me. Um, Imagine you tell me something, and I look at you and I say, you know what, justify that statement. What am I saying to you when I respond to you in that way? I'm not asking you to change the statement that you're making. What I'm asking you is to say, help me see what you're saying. Help me accept what you say is true. Help me know where you're coming from. That's what we mean when we say justify that statement. And that's what Paul is saying here. Luther is trying to say that when God comes in and changes us, it's not because he makes us to be righteous. Rather, He declares us to be righteous. In other words, He doesn't change us. He changes our relationship to Him. He changes our posture, our stance towards Him. The way in which He looks at us. The way in which He considers us. And boy, is this really the source of so much confusion for Christian people. So many people come to a a moment of decision in their lives where they want to change. They, They realize they've gotten away from God. And so they resolve to do better, and maybe they pray. They, they come to church, they might have even joined the church. And this is their example of getting back with God because they've gotten far away from Him. But all of a sudden, as time sort of goes on, they begin to feel that commitment kind of waning. A little bit of time goes away, and the sort of uh, energetic vibe that I had just kind of dissipates. Maybe those old habits sort of creep their way back in and just sort of beat you down with discouragement. Maybe for some of us, it's ancient addictions that we really thought we were kind of done with. They show back up in our life. And all of a sudden, what happens? The bottom falls out. And we begin to look and realize that I'm on his outs again. God is against me once again. But look, what Paul is saying is here is that when God begins a work in someone, he doesn't do anything inside of you until he does something about you. And what is that thing he does about you? He starts with acceptance. He opens the whole relationship by saying, look, I promise you, if you tried to like do this yourself, if I gave you a bunch of hoops to jump through, you'd mess it up. So you know what? I'm not going to do any of that. And he sweeps it away and he opens up with acceptance. Look, this would not be all that interesting until you realize that we are always trying to reverse this process. You ever notice this? <laughs> In other words, God says, I'm going to save you only by grace. And in the light of that grace, we're going to talk about a new life to live. But we actually kind of want it the other way around. Well, you know, as soon as I get my life together, I'll go back to church. You know, I really honestly felt so far away from God. I just wish I could get over this one thing. You see how we want to reverse that process and make the foundation on us and not on what he does? Let me try another illustration here because I thought this was really helpful when I heard it from somebody else. Um, a number of uh, uh, years ago, I was driving across campus. I used to work as a campus minister at old Miss. And I was driving across campus and got stuck behind someone who was clearly lost. And I could feel my temperature rising. The road rage that is somewhere deep inside of me comes out a little too quickly. I've, you've been warned multiple times now. But as we pulled, we both ended up going to the student union. The old student union used to be a parking lot behind, behind the student union. And we both pulled in there. He was like five or six uh, things away from me. So as I got out of my car, I thought that I would give him You know, one last glare. Because that's clearly what he deserved from having gone so slowly through campus and slowing me down to make it to whatever Bible study I was going to on time. There's no end to the hypocrisy, people, I promise you. But as I stepped out of my car, I saw that he stepped out of his car, and I looked, and the guy was dressed in full military dress. Now, let me explain this. I have always, since a very child, been enamored by soldiers I just am. I look at people who give that kind of sacrifice and I'm always in awe. I watch war movies with my jaw open thinking, I, I don't understand that kind of courage. I'm, a, I'm amazed by people who serve in our nation's military. So when I saw that guy, suddenly everything changed. My heart was no longer irritated. Suddenly I looked at him with a lot of respect and a lot of awe. You want to know why? Because I saw how he was dressed. That's exactly what justification is. His deeds were still the same. He was still poking through campus as slow as he could be. What happened, though, was my perspective on his deeds had changed because of how he was clothed. That's a good illustration. (laughs) Because Jesus is saying, what I'm going to do with you and for you is I'm going to change your clothing. And we're going to wait and talk about fixing you. That's actually in two weeks. We're going to wait until we fix with you Till first you've got to understand that I'm going to dress you in a way that fills me with respect and awe and joy in you. And to be honest with you, I have found that to be the hardest thing to believe. Of all, Look, virgin birth, pff, easy compared to that idea that Jesus actually looks at me and he's pleased. But that's what justification is. Which brings me to a third quick point here. What that means is, is justification is a whole lot more than forgiveness. Now, don't get me wrong. Two enthusiastic thumbs up for forgiveness. That's great. But if that's all you have, I'll bet you you're an insecure Christian. Because if all we have is forgiveness, that basically takes care of anything that I've done up until that time. But what about the future? See, I know my own heart. and I know that I've got plenty more potential where that came from. But if justification is true, it covers not only where I've been, not only where I am, but where I will be. Because He looks at me through the eyes of acceptance. 100%. That's why Paul, a couple chapters later from right here, will say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's empty. It's done. That that voice chasing you up out of the basement is gone and done forever justified as a free gift. Wow, that's kind of what we're excited about. If we become evangelists for that, that's what it is, which brings me to the second point. How can this be? What is the foundation for our excitement? Well, another big word we get in verses 24 and 25. Paul says that justification came through the, quote, redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. All right, there's your second big word propitiation, what in the world is that? Well, in its simplest definition, propitiation simply means to to divert someone's anger. Okay? It it is to sort of redirect wrath that's coming down on you. So if someone propitiates someone's wrath, they know how to sort of divert that into another place. And what Paul is saying is, is that when Jesus died on the cross, His blood shedding was the thing that diverted God's wrath that was rightfully placed upon humankind. Now, here's where the objections come. Two objections. Number one, many of you are saying to yourself, oh, wow, that's this one, one of the, this is, this is the kind of church this is? The wrath of God, you know, God's anger at his people. Is that really what we're going to go back to now? But look, don't, don't be too naive about this, because I do think that if you think that love and anger are complete opposites, it makes me wonder if you have children, Bear with me, children. I'm a child of someone's parents too, and this is absolutely true. I have met with parents before who have walked through all manner of addiction, of pain, of frustration, livid at every turn. And you want to know why? Because they love their children. To love someone is to always... How can I say this? To love someone is to be in complete opposition to the one thing that might interrupt your love to them. Am I wrong? And you know what that issue's out as? Anger. It's appropriate. And so God looks at his people and says, Yes, I'm angry. Yes, there's wrath. Because I'm at anger at anything that would actually thwart my purposes to love and care for my people. I don't think wrath, I don't think love and anger are opposition to each other. One person said, Uh, anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. The opposite of love is indifference when you just don't care. But if you care enough, you're probably going to get mad about it sometime. For the chronically angry, by the way, I'm not excusing your bad habit. You need to be in counseling. That's another story. The second objection, though, is is people are like, okay, now you're back to the bloodshedding thing. All right, okay, so anger and love, maybe they're compatible, fine. But what in the world, why is it that you Christians always have to talk about blood being shed? Why does it have to be so gory? Somewhere long ago, someone died on a cross. What would that ever have to do with me? That seems senseless and brutal, like you've made God into this sort of you know, angry deity just waiting for blood? Well, you know, but that objection is only true if you think about it. If the person that died 2,000 years ago was a mere man, what if, though, that person was not a mere man, but was God Himself come into the flesh? If that's the case, then the bloodletting that happened 2,000 years ago was God actually turning the gun on Himself. That all of that wrath and all of that anger and the demand that blood must be shed that He never established until He intended to do it Himself. That as Jesus is hung upon the cross, there is being enacted a contract that existed between Jesus and His Father from before the time in which the world was ever made so that He would come and win His people over in that way. Hmm. That's not quite so bloodthirsty it sounds, especially if He's one who's willing to be the one who took the blood on Himself. God is the one who extends Himself and takes the hit for His beloved He absorbs it himself into his own person. Okay. Why are we so excited as Christians? We're excited because justification is better than forgiveness. And we're excited because he has shed his blood for us. There has been someone sacrificed for another. But you know what? I began to think how do you help people understand that this is very moving? And the answer is you know that this is moving. I remember very vividly the time in which I cried the most. Bear with me for a moment. When I was in seminary, someone had given me a copy of a book, some of you have read it, by a guy named Sheldon Van Auken called A Severe Mercy. The story is really a love story about Van Auken and his beloved wife, whom he met in his early 20s, Davy. And Sheldon and Davy entered into a love affair of just, you know, mythic proportions. Um, They were two people that had everything in common, they were two people who barely ever fought in any substantive way, and when they did, they knew how to make up. They were two people that had a depth of passion that allowed them to travel the world while he was writing for magazines to make enough money. I mean, it's, it's a love affair to, to die for. So profound was it that the two of them erected for themselves what they called the shining barrier. The shining barrier was an emotional wall that they had built up around their own hearts to, to guarantee... That no one would ever come between the the, the two of them. Nothing would get back beyond this shining barrier. Well, eventually, as the story goes, they move to Oxford to study for his PhD, and they meet none other than C.S. Lewis. Van Aken himself is fairly taken by Lewis in a sort of uh, intellectual way. He finds his arguments profound and interestingly drawn into his discussion. Um, But it still remains theoretical for him. He's not sure. He stands on the outside of Christianity. Davy, on the other hand, is deeply interested, and she begins to listen. And then one night, Davy has an encounter with, of all things, a very dark piece of art, a painting that struck something inside of her that she broke, and she repented, and she accepted Jesus as her Savior and became a Christian. And, of course, uh, Van Auken was to know nothing really of it at the time, but the shining barrier had been breached. As it went on, gradually, Van Auken began to notice Davy changing. Her Suddenly, her habits were different, and he didn't like what he was seeing. And eventually, Davy found herself late one evening with the unhappy realization that she was the main hindrance for her husband coming to Christ. Because he was still living behind the shining barrier and looking to Davy to be the thing that would ultimately make sense of everything. She realized that she, he would never come to Christ as long as she was in the picture. And one night, it came to this. Let me read this. But that night, she did not sleep. All night, like the saints, she wrestled in prayer. Some say that prayer, even prayer for what God desires, releases power by the operation of a deep spiritual law. And to offer up what one loves may release yet more. However that may be, Davy that night offered up her life for me, that my soul might be fulfilled. Now, as I fixed my eyes on the island in the west and looked not eastward, she humbly proposed a holy exchange. It was between her and the incarnate one Jesus, even though I was not to know it then. So that in the months later, after Davy contracts cancer, she begins to see her cancer through the grid of God's good purposes to the one that she loved so much. And looked at it and she said, it's all worth it if he ends up finding Jesus. you got to read it to see what happened. But fast forward to the spring of 1994 in a small dorm room in Jackson, Mississippi, and I'm crying my eyes out at 3 a.m. Why? Because it's always moving. The thought of someone giving their life. I mean, really giving their life for someone else. Really sacrificing for someone else digs within us patterns of joy that we otherwise could never know. It's the gospel. It's good news that Jesus comes and brings to His people. So here's the question. Last week I asked you what it would mean to become a place of the book. What if we became a place of grace? Where the number one thing that was the the, the sort of contractual connection between us as members of Christ Presbyterian Church was the knowledge that you discovered it too. (laughs) You found out that you too can be it, that I too can be it. I know it's crazy, isn't it? What if we became that kind of place? We're going to talk about it again next week. I think it's so important. But do you know that? Is there that kind of excitement in your own life? Let's pray. Lord, on any other day of the week, my answer would be, no, I don't feel that excited. There's enough encrusted around my own heart to confuse me endlessly, it seems. But maybe you could just crack the door a little bit this morning. Maybe we can sort of forget about our performance this week. Maybe we can forget about the argument that we had in the car on the way here this morning. Just to crack the door and see that your acceptance of us is perfect and won for us by Jesus that You have justified us. You have, cl- cl- you have declared us to be not guilty. And oh, Lord, just that little sliver, I think, would suffice. Just that little glimpse that You take joy in Your people would change us, I think. Would You do that this morning? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.